We have been looking on Sunday nights uh, for the last few weeks at the emotional responses that the Scripture speaks of that we have toward God. And uh, we began with uh, the fear of God because the fear of God is the beginning. That's what the Bible tells us. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. From there we move to humbling ourselves before God, which is actually the natural progression of fearing God. If we fear God, we humble ourselves before Him. Again, a couple of weeks ago, looking at the incredible subject of the love of God, our love for God, God's love for us. And uh, I've always liked that classic quote from R.G. Lee, uh, who had an amazing way of expressing himself. And uh, he said, the love of God was old when the pyramids were new. And uh, uh, that's absolutely true. The love of God. What are we going to say about the love of God? Exhaustless. The supply. We'll talk about that tonight. Uh, for our message this evening, we're going to begin in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Very famous passage of scripture. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. To them that love God. I'll remind you of. Uh, our passage in Mark chapter 12 and verse 30, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. Uh, this is the first commandment. This is one of those passages where we find that Hebrew figure of speech, many ands. And whenever we find that in the scripture, in English, you know, there's a rule, one and per sentence. So when you're reading in the Bible and you see and, 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 uh, that's a Hebrew figure of speech. And it's designed to slow our thinking down and cause us to pay specific attention to every single thing that's mentioned in the list. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. And that's just the way it should be read. This is the first commandment. We're required to love God then with all our hearts, the volitional side of us, the will. We're required to love God with our soul, the emotional side of us, the affections. We're to love God with our mind, the intellectual side of us, which is how we can learn about loving God and learn about God. And as we do, learn how to love Him more. The greatest of all intellectual pursuits is to learn more about God. And to deepen our love for Him. And then to love God with all our strength. The physical side of us. So that we live for God and not for ourselves. Not just for our own plans and purposes. This is what loving God means. So when we talk about the meaning of the love of God. It is defined in this way. Tonight we consider this most mystical and glorious promise. Of Romans 8.28. And like any passage of Scripture, it needs to be considered in its context. And unfortunately, this one seldom is. So tonight I want to acquaint you, reacquaint you, remind you a little bit about the context of the passage of Romans 8.28. Because I think if we do, we'll be able to understand better what this passage means. That all things are working together or work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to its purpose. We remember then that Romans chapter 8 begins with the great truth 
of no condemnation. There is now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. It ends then with the great statement. Uh, There's no separation. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So it begins with no condemnation and ends with no separation. It follows the discussion of the battle that Christians have between the fleshly side of us and the spiritual side of us. Between the new man that has been created in Christ Jesus and the old man that still struggles and fights and, yes, sometimes loses to sin. He reminds us that our humanity struggles along then within itself in the midst of an entire creation that is struggling and groaning within itself under the power and the penalty of sin, waiting then for its ultimate redemption. He reminds us that as believers, there is something that we are still hoping for because we are saved in hope, but salvation didn't give us all that we hope for. I want to say that again. Salvation... And it's not a fault of salvation, but salvation, when we were saved, we didn't get all that we hoped for. We're saved in hope. We haven't got it all yet. You see, our salvation didn't deliver us from the struggle and the sorrow and the suffering of sin. And it did not deliver us from living in the midst of a sin-cursed world. It introduces us, and Romans 8 does, to the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that that is setting us free from the law of sin and of death, (coughs) which is how the principle plays out that greater is he that's in you and me than he that is in the world. Romans 8, 26 then, likewise the spirit also helps our infirmities or our weaknesses. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Aren't you glad that the Holy Spirit of God makes intercession for us in accordance with God's will and not in accordance with our will? I don't care how many times the name it, claim it, folks, put that that stuff out there. The simple fact is that the truth of Romans 8.27 doesn't change. The Spirit makes intercession for us in accordance with the will of God. He is working then to help us in our infirmities. So our text then, Romans 8.28, is a part of this broader discussion A discussion of how that our salvation did not give us all that we hoped it would. And I think there was a part of all of us that really hoped that when we got saved that that battle with sin was going to be over. And it wasn't. In fact, it intensified. We really hadn't known about the battle with sin. We'd know, all we'd known about before we were saved was living under the power of sin. It's when we were saved then that we really learned about the battle with the will and the wants, the struggle with sin and sorrow and suffering and our interaction then with the world that's also writhing in birth pangs and the Spirit of God helping us and interceding on our behalf as the guarantee of our inheritance. 
But I want us to understand tonight that Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 is positioned right in the middle of all this truth to remind us that this is not a bad thing, that salvation didn't give us all we hoped for. It's a good thing. That it's not working together for our bad, but it's actually working together for our good. I want to explain that for you tonight. For salvation to have given us everything that we hoped for. So that the moment from salvation we were completely saved. We got all that we had hoped for in salvation. For that to have happened. You know what God would have had to do? <laughs> Take us to heaven. <laughs> That's right. Saved. Boop. Gone. Raptured. All in the same instant. You say, well, what's wrong with that? Who'd be left here to tell the story of Jesus? Not only that, but if you were saved like I was at seven years old, I'm glad I got to grow up and enjoy the world, uh, meet somebody love, have great kids and grandkids. I look at my kids all the time and say, thank you, God, that I lived and was able to have kids. My grandkids, thank you, God, I've lived long enough to see my kids grow up and become mamas and daddies themselves. And Thank you, God. What a great thing that you let me live and let me love. So no, salvation did not give us everything that we hoped for immediately. But that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But leaving us in a sin-corrupted body has its price. Leaving us in a sin-corrupted, sin-cursed world comes with a price. And the price is that we do not have immunity to sin or sorrow or suffering or sickness. But what we do have, Romans 8.27 we have the Spirit of God helping us. So no, we didn't get all that we hoped for, and we're left here in this sin-cursed world. That sin-cursed world means we're still subject to sin and sorrow and suffering and struggling. But we have the mighty Spirit of God living in us to help us. He knows what we need. He works in us. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's working together for good. But isn't it intriguing that within this cosmic discussion of the plans and purposes of God takes us all the way from before time began to the time when time is no longer. From foreknew to predestined to called to justified to glorified. And what qualifies us to be a part of this entire discussion is that we love God. All things are working together for good to them that Love God. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed, O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Ephesians 6, 24. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. 1 Corinthians 16, 22 makes a declarative statement. If a person doesn't love Jesus... He's accursed. What's that mean? 
that a person who does not love Jesus Christ is lost. That's what it means. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't matter how many churches they belong to, how many times they've been baptized. They don't love Jesus Christ. They're not saved. Let him be accursed. I didn't say that. 1 Corinthians 16, 22 said it. The promise is God's grace to be with those that love God. Why? Because God's purposes and promises and grace and favor and blessings and help are on those who love the Lord Jesus. They're not on those who are not saved, who hate God, hate Jesus. That's not where God's purposes and promises are operating. When we understand this then, that all of these promises are conditioned upon those who love God. And a person who doesn't love God then is called unsaved in Scripture. Then we understand that the love of God is not casual, but it's consuming. It's not a byline in the Christian life. It's the headline. It's not optional. It's crucial. It's not a, a meaningless detail. It is, in fact, the very definition of who we are in Christ. We are the people who love God. We're the people who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this tells us the meaning and the significance then of of the love, and we set that in its context that all of these promises and purposes that we hear, all of these blessings, all of this promise of goodness and favor, all of that is conditioned on those who love God. We understand that. Then the question comes in how? How how do we get to love God? How do we do this? If we begin to understand then what it means to love God and how significant it is, and I hope it is, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now let's pick up 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9. The how. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Here in His love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Uh, Just stop for a moment and give a quick plug about our Awana program. You know, one of the great things I love about the Awana program is we'll start our puggles out learning about God loved us. God loved us. That's, that's what they learned. That's what they memorized. Cubbles, puggies, puggles, cubbies. I'll get it out in a minute. God loved us. Sparkies will learn God loved us and sent his son. A little bit later, they'll learn that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, and they'll learn what propitiation means. It's no wonder when those kids that's been in Awana all those years get to that age where it starts hitting home to them that all of a sudden the Holy Spirit convicts that and those scriptures just come alive in them. They've already memorized them. Anyway, the truth of this passage is profound. It's not that we love God, it's that God loved us. I want you to notice also Romans chapter 1 and verse 30 in that prolonged discussion of all of the problems of human sin and depravity. Romans chapter 1 and verse 30 gives us this, that men would be backbiters, 
haters of God. I want you to just look at that a minute. Haters of God. We can divide the world, God does, between those who are lovers of God and those who are haters of God. That divides Cabot, Arkansas. It divides the state of Arkansas. It divides our nation. It divides our world. Those who love God, those who hate God. We might be inclined to wonder why that some are described then as hating God or being God haters or hating Jesus. Why is that true? It is true because they don't love God. It is true because they don't love Jesus Christ. Human hearts may not put that together. I mean, if you ask people, well, do you hate God? They'd say, well, no, I don't believe in Him, but I don't know. If you don't love God or don't love Jesus Christ, the Scripture presents that as being the hatred of God, the hatred of Jesus no wonder then when it comes to our love for God that it's not that we loved him but that he loved us puts a whole new dimension on that on that simple statement that God saw us in our sin and he saw us in our hatred of him that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us Christ died for people that hated him and he knew it We love him because he first loved us, 1 John 4 and 19. You see, the, the whole subject of our love for God does not begin with us. We're not the initiator. We're the responder. We aren't the pursuer, but the pursued. Our love for God begins not with ourselves, but with him. The first move is always with God. The Garden of Eden, we can go back and see it plainly there. Uh, that uh, They say to err is human. And yeah, to cover it up is too. And uh, we see them covering and cowering and rebelling and running. And it was God who came to them. But the question, Adam, where are you? First move is always with God. Paul gave us a definitive discussion of this in Titus chapter 3. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It is the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man that appeared. That's what came first. And then that love comes to us. How? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. It's not that we woke up one day and decided, we know I'm going to start loving God. No. What do we see? We see the kindness and love of God our Savior because of His incredible mercy. He brought to us the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He 
shed on us abundantly. That's the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit that He gave to us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that we could be justified by grace and become heirs of eternal life. You put these things together then, we understand the Bible defines a saved person as one who loves God. But this isn't something we initiate. It is something that begins with God so that our love for Him is a choice we make when we see His incredible love for us. The how then of the love of God. How do we love God? It is something that begins in us when we are saved. Salvation changes us from the inside out as it turns us from being a hater of God to being a lover of God. Now, I want us to add in a few more passages tonight and we'll be finished. Romans chapter 5 and verse 5. Now hope, he says, does not disappoint Don't you just love this? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so I go back to the whole context of Romans 8 and 28, which is just interwoven in all of these passages as he discusses all of this in the book of Romans, the first eight chapters really, uh, as he is bringing us into this culminating part of this long discussion. He's talking to us about the promises and blessings that come to those who love God. But the reason that we love God is because the love of God was poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit of God. It's no wonder then the Bible describes a person who is unsaved as being a hater of God. Why? Because they don't have the Holy Spirit living in them that's pouring out the love of God in their hearts. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 5, And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. And so when we were saved and the Holy Spirit came into us, one of the things that He did was He brought with Him, of course, the love of God in us. So that the love of God was not just sprinkled a little bit, He didn't give us a, it's not a Brill cream kind of thing, just get a little dab of it, and some of you have no idea what Brill cream even was. A little dab will do, you know about that. that. That's a hair product for ancient times, ancient times. It was shed in us abundantly, abundantly. And then Paul is praying, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God, meaning our love of God can grow, and it does. When we think about the presence of the Holy Spirit and us pouring out God's love in our hearts abundantly, it's no wonder Jesus said that uh, out of our hearts, out of their, the bellies of those who love him, out of our innermost being would flow rivers of living water. But not only is the Spirit of God constantly pouring the love of God into our hearts, and if it's constantly pouring it out, then it's, we're constantly then able to, to give it out and express that love of God. And we express it in our worship. We express it in our conversation. We express it in our prayer. We express it in our praise. The Holy Spirit is pouring it into us, and we then can let it flow. God is also constantly leading and directing us into an ever-deepening love for us, for Him. He wants us to love Him more. We understand how love grows. 
our love for our children begins before we ever meet them. Brother Rich, when did you start loving your kids? The minute Nancy said, I'm pregnant. Yep. <laughs> Hadn't met them yet. When did you start loving your grandkids? The minute I heard about them, we're expecting. I don't need some long, complicated argument as to why abortion is wrong. I've experienced the living reality of it from the moment that that life is conceived. The parents know it. Very shortly afterwards, and we find out about it. There it is, yes. And then immediately there's love. We know that love grows deeper. It grows fuller. We see that in our, in our spouses. We see that in our relationships with other Christians, with our friends. We see how that love flourishes when it is returned. It's difficult for love to grow and flourish in a barren soil of the heart of someone who doesn't love us back. But we never have to worry about that with God. God has an inexhaustible supply of love. His love is infinite. He doesn't just love us when we're good. He loves us all the time, and the more we love Him, we all know it. We're never going to outlove God. God loves us more. But we couldn't do this on our own. And it's a good thing that we're not left to do it on our own because the Spirit of God is working to equip us and enable our love for God. We know then that. The love of God in us is the work of the Spirit. The how. How does it happen? Well, when we're saved, the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in our life and He sheds, brings to us the love of God abundantly, not just a little bit, but abundantly that He brings in our hearts so that that love for God is able to flow out of us as believers in Christ. That love grows as we learn more and more about God. As we love God, God returns that love. Always, always returns. Never consumes it. It's the work of the Spirit that brings all this about. But there's something else to know. Matthew 24 and 12. Look at it. Significant. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Isn't that interesting? See, the Spirit of God is in us, and He is shedding the love of God in us abundantly, but there's something that can diminish our love for God. And it is nothing more than pure, old, nasty, filthy sin. But it's presented in this passage by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 12 as a time of abounding iniquity that the abounding iniquity would be in the world, in the culture, but there's something about that. Because iniquity shall abound, it's also a time of abating love. The love of many will wax cold. And of course, you remember, and are already jumping ahead of me, in Revelation chapter 2, 
And the word that he gave to the church at Ephesus when Jesus said, Nevertheless, I have this against you. Literally, he said, I am against you because you have left your first love. Our love for God can grow, and it's intended to grow. Our love for God is shed abroad in us by the mighty Holy Spirit of God. He lives in us. He is constantly growing our love. Our our love grows by our association, by our devotion to God. As we experience that love, then we can express that love. All that's true. We can also turn away from it. And Jesus spoke to a church that was prosperous, that was standing on doctrinal truth. They were doctrinally sound. They had stood against the false apostles. They had a lot going for them, the church at Ephesus. But there was one credit that wiped out all their debits. And left Jesus saying, you repent or else. Because no matter how much work they did, how much service they had, how much giving they did, how much praying they did. Jesus said, if you don't love me, I'm going to remove your lampstand from out of its place. They would cease to be a church. Unless you repent. Jesus would not, how would I say it? I can't say it any other way than just to say it the way I'm thinking it. Jesus wouldn't put up with a church that won't love him. I'll remove you out of your place. Sternest warning that he gave to all the churches in Revelation. And so this brings us then to the end of this message, but also the beginning of the next one. And I don't have this passage on the PowerPoint, but I'll tell you where we're going. Because if we have, uh, if we talked about what it means to love God, and, and then the method how, how, how are we able to love God? Then we also speak of how it's manifested. So we get not only the meaning and the method, but the manifestation of the love of God. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. But this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Are not grievous. I'll just leave you with that little taste. I'm not going to preach that. I'm, I'm, I'm seriously tempted to, but I'm not. Because if I got started, there's no quitting place. That's why we have three sermons, not one, on the love of God. I remind you again tonight, the love of God is a crucial part, is the crucial part of our relationship with Him. It's not incidental. It's crucial. It's a great time then for us to think about our love for God. The feelings of closeness that we have with the Lord may not always be a good indicator of the love of God in us. But we look at these passages, and I hope you will. We'll go back and pull them up and listen to them. Think about them again. Because we contemplate this great truth. All things work together for good to them that love God. Are you one of those? 
I ask you tonight, have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? You know for sure that you have the mighty Holy Spirit of God living in you. If so, then do you love Him? Do you really love Him? Don't you want to love Him more? Amen. I sure do. Let's stand together.